Every single customer, every single HCP is an individual and in his normal life, he's just like you and me. I mean, they are going on Snapchat, they are going on Twitter, they are having a life, they are informed by Dr. Google like everyone. And we were completely absent from that. And the only way for us to get there was to say, you know what? We are going to ship the thing around. We keep the basement, the fundamentals of strategy decided based on patients and patients' outcome, but we need then to serve. We shouldn't push. We need to give to the people enough for them to pull because they are interested, because it's high quality, because it's a format they want, it's a channel that they want, it's when they want. I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of Contextual Intelligence. How many times have you heard the phrase digital transformation lately? Or what about patient-centric? The life sciences industry seems to know exactly what it wants to do and to be, but getting there is a much bigger challenge. Today's guest is working hard to solve that. I'm very excited to introduce Florent Edouard, Global Head of Commercial Excellence at Grunenthal. For the last three years, Florent has been reimagining the organization's commercial model and cultivating a culture that's relentlessly customer-focused and not afraid of change. Before that, he spent 12 years shaping and delivering global strategy at AstraZeneca in Japan and the UK. Florent, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for inviting me, and really happy to have that discussion with you. Your background is so interesting, both in terms of industries, in terms of startup and very mature companies, in terms of geography, as you've been in multiple places. Can you just take us on a little bit of the path that you've taken in your career and where you've landed now? I started in banking in a French bank. That was very interesting. You know, at the beginning of a career, that kind of shapes part of your style. And I think I learned a lot in banking, specifically around language and the importance of language in a corporate world where finance talks finance, sales talks sales, marketing talks marketing. And if you talk to those people, you need to use their language. That's very important. And then, you know, at some point I had friends, we are launching a startup that was beautiful times of startup. And I was like, okay, you know what? Why not? Let's go there. It was in healthcare that I totally didn't know, but that didn't matter. We learned from the best, like all consultants do, right? I mean, at the beginning, you know nothing. Your customer pays a lot of money to get your services and your workforce. And then you learn everything. And we sold the company. And then I moved to AstraZeneca where I held various commercial roles. I think the startup part taught me the responsibility on people. Like when you are in a startup at the end of the month, if you have not sold, you can't pay the salaries. And that puts on you a very heavy burden and responsibility. You're not gonna waste your investor money and you're not gonna not pay your people who are working for you. And also that need that, okay, you know what? At the end of the day, the show must go on. You need people on stage doing the show. You need the text. You need someone to do the lights and this type of stuff. So there's always a way out and preferably a way up. So that's what I learned there. And then I moved to AstraZeneca and that's where I learned pharma, basically, and everything. And then I've moved into various directions, always in commercial. So let me ask you about your geographic travels. You've been in roles where global standardization is a priority, but you've been also in a variety of different regions around the world. So you've seen the importance of being able to customize according to local markets or behaviors. How do you think about that balance now in your career? And what did you learn along the way about how to strike that balance? So I think first, it's not a gimmick to say that diversity and inclusion 
is an absolute necessity and an incredible strength when you get it right. Working across teams that were over the world, so having a 24-24 job being based in Europe or being four years in Japan in a completely different culture, what matters is the people, how you interact with them, is how you try to understand and work with them to make them better professionals and to be successful from a business standpoint. And literally, I don't see any organization that is really successful that would be built only of exactly the same people. Yes, alignment is good. Yes, discipline in execution is paramount. But you need also to have different inputs. You need to have different people. You need to have a real great collaboration across geographies. That's very important. But Florent, you wrote what I thought was a fantastic article in Pharma Forum, which I would encourage everybody to look at called the four principles for the future of pharma marketing. But there are a number of things in there that I think would be very interesting for us to probe here a little bit. And you talk about those four principles, one of which is patient centricity or customer centricity. And that's a term, as I mentioned in the intro, that we use quite often. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between paying lip service and speaking to the importance of it versus actually practicing that and how difficult that is, but how important that is to be able to achieve. It's been, you know, an ongoing story about should we be patient-centric, should we be customer-centric, right? And the industry has been going left and right, and depending on the companies and location, it was one or the other. And in fact, we have realized, I think over the last years, that we took a company that was kind of virgin to that debate. Yes, a patient centricity in Grenatal was in the values. But for instance, when we were talking about brand plans or marketing or medical, the patient was not really core to everything that we were doing. And we had to have that phase where we said, you know what, anything that we do should ultimately benefit the patient. Anything that we do should result in patient outcomes. Otherwise, we don't do our job. And then that was a phase. But once you've done that, we think it's not enough. Once you've done that, when, once you have baseline your strategy, when you have decided your investment, when you have made your research and your clinical studies with that in mind, then needs to come the customer. Because ultimately, we are a business where we are serving people who are prescribing and treating patients. We are not serving directly the patient. The patient is not the end customer. And there, the world has changed. Every single customer, every single HCP is an individual and in his normal life, is just like you and me. I mean, they are going on Snapchat, they are going on Twitter, they are having a life, they are informed by Dr. Google like everyone. And we were completely absent from that. And the only way for us to get there was to say, you know what? We are going to ship the thing around. We keep the basement, the fundamentals of strategy decided based on patients and patients outcome, but we need then to serve. We shouldn't push. We need to give to the people enough for them to pull because they are interested, because it's high quality, because it's a format they want, it's a channel that they want, it's when they want. And, and that is an absolutely massive transformation that is really hard. I think personally far harder than the patient's adversity. Because the patient's adversity, if you think about it, you give a purpose to the people. When I was working in banking, my purpose was to increase the earning per share. When I'm working in healthcare, my purpose is to help patients feel better, in our case, eliminate pain. You, I, 
our future pain patients. We know it. It's going to happen one day. You will, you will feel the pain. And at that point, you will think, if Laurent had done a better job, I would not feel the pain. This is true. I have found myself over the last year, every time I have an interaction with an HCP, using them and probably annoying them in a little research study to ask them how they have seen behaviors change themselves in terms of their embrace of digital tools, or if they've seen different changes in the way that pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies communicate with them. And it's very interesting. What this has really forced upon the industry in a behavior change has unfortunately come with a great cost, but there have been some things that have accelerated as a result that I think will ultimately be positive for that relationship. Is that something that you have seen in your experience as well over the last year or so? No, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm unfortunately old enough to have seen the old style marketing, the race to share a voice, the, I wouldn't say the creating unmet needs, but trying very, very, very hard to discover an unmet need that only your product can satisfy and then build a whole communication strategy around that, even if the doctors will see these specific patients maybe once a year, right? And pushing your product with that. And now what we've seen is the physicians retreating from that, saying, I'm not interested in seeing that. They never go by themselves to see that on your website or whatever. The number of apps, websites that the companies have been creating to support their brands and that got zero views except the search engine is enormous. That's a waste of money. When you see that the doctors and the physicians and the nurses still go online and will go into communities, into forums to try to find the right information that they need. And that's where we need to offer our services, our support, our help for them to become better professionals at their own reason, consuming what they want to consume, not us spoon feeding them. So what prevents customer centricity from being embraced? Because obviously I think you would get almost 100% agreement from anyone you speak to in the life sciences industry that that's the right approach, that that would be positive for patient care, that would be positive for the relationship with HCPs, but it is harder to achieve. What do you think prevents that from being embraced? I think we love our products. We spend 10 years developing them. When they fail, it's a blow to the whole company strategy, it makes the headlines. Every time the FDA rejects a product or a clinical study fails, you know, everyone talks about that. So we love so much our product that it makes us completely blind to the real customer. With the fact that the customer is not the payer and also the customer is not the one that's going to take the product with the patient makes it quite an atypical customer. So the standard techniques of marketing and sales don't apply to that. So the people rely on what has been successful in the past because it's easier. And going down to let's reorganize ourselves. Let's imagine we have a product we're working in respiratory and in fact we are dealing only with respiratory specialists and some generalist practitioners right who are treating elderly patients which company has set up themselves this way saying i'm not going to set up myself by respiratory biologics and then triple therapies and then monotherapies i'm going to set up myself by specialists and then everyone's going to work for the specialist and then I've got a unit who is doing for the GPs and everyone's working for the GPs. Even we've done business units, they were then clustered below that by products. 
So the product is always on the front line in terms of thinking. That's a hard thing to change. So you're, you're leading a transformation at Grunenthal right now. Is that part of what you are trying to transform? A structure or a mindset that is more customer-oriented than product-oriented? Completely. The idea for us now is to say, you know what? We don't need to do those huge brand plants once a year that contains a stratospheric strategy that never lands on the ground, by the way, because the sales team can't execute it, because they cannot identify the physicians the marketers are talking about in their target list, in their Viva system, or no, no commercial for Viva, but that's what more or less many people are using. And, and so we said, what we need now is to make sure that we are going to create the right customer experiences. So asking the customer what they want to see and making sure we deliver against those demands. And so we will have people who will be specialized in creating good customer experiences for a dedicated group of customers. So it's not going to happen overnight. We can't suddenly rewire the whole sales and marketing and commercial and everything in a company. But by really pushing in that direction, by creating the jobs, by changing the approach of the people, by changing the process, then we will get there with time. So a second thing that I thought was very interesting in the article that I want to talk a little bit about is the focus of analytic teams within pharma companies. And this is something that is very interesting in our experience at Octana, because quite often when we first start talking to a potential customer, the analytic team can think of us as a challenge to what they do, because we have a similar capability. And then over time, it goes 180 degrees in the other direction where we become great partners because we can be complementary in what we do and what we bring in terms of value. And you mentioned in the article that the talent or the attention or both of an analytic team can be split between R&D and commercial. And commercial quite often is a lower priority. How do you address that? How are you addressing that at Grunenthal to make sure that the commercial side of the operation gets that analytic focus and talent? Well, the first thing is we build on the internal strengths and which is really interesting that we have, I think we have a board who is very analytical. We have that luxury to have, you know, senior guys who understands maths, who loves maths. And we can go to them and explain them that correlation is not the only statistical model that you can use in the world. And they understand what we're talking about. So that's really fundamental. I mean, in a former life, we had surrealist discussions with senior managers who are telling us, you're telling me that you can predict based on the portfolio and based on the mix that is going to apply to customer, how much sales we're going to do. This is the holy grail of pharma. I don't believe you. you. You can't have possibly found that. And we're like, no, it's, it's just, you know what? The guys in R&D are doing it. The guys in R&D use statisticians and mathematicians, and they build super sophisticated models to understand their data and to be sure and to guarantee that when a study comes out of their labs, it is bulletproof from an analytical standpoint. Let's apply that rigor in the commercial world. Let's clean the data, let's aggregate the data, let's make sure everyone builds also a culture of data. And that's very important that everyone in the organization understands that frequent, reach and frequency are slightly outdated KPIs in terms of understanding the performance of an organization. And that we have now methodologies and approaches that use, yes, more complicated mathematics and analytics, but nothing that normally someone in the company shouldn't be able to understand. So really, really simple stuff. 
but that gives you a real insight on what is working and what is not working in your business. So it's working on the people, working on the system, working on the data, and making sure you got the backup from your board that understands what you are trying to do. Do you think it's more challenging in the commercial side of the business because you're now much more externally focused, which increases the number of touch points, the number of characters in the story that you're trying to understand, the number of data sources, all of these things. Is that what makes it more challenging and complicated? Or are there other factors at work that you've seen? Uh, this one is a critical one because it's garbage in, garbage out. So if you have one data source that is of low quality, it may pollute everything that you do and all the analyses that you're going to do are wrong. So it's tedious, it's painful, but you need really to make sure that the explosion in volumes of data is not going to compromise the quality of your analytics. But I think more importantly, the change management on the people is really what will stop the most adventurous and what will stop the most ambitious initiatives. Because at the end of the day, you know, you got that super meeting and you're looking at, you know, forecast for the next 10 years for that product. And with your sophisticated analytics, you come up with, okay, you know what? I think this product can reach that number of patients and we can get that benefit from it. Da, 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 da. And then you got that random dude around the table who says, well, you know what, Florent, yesterday I had dinner with a key opinion leader and he told me that. And that's where you eat the hippo, you eat the highest paid person opinion in the room, right? Highest income person in the room. And then it's finished. Your whole analytics goes down the drain. No one believes in your number anymore because one QOL that has published something 20 years ago has said the opposite of what your numbers are proving. And so building that transformation saying, you know what, sometimes the machine is going to tell you turn left. You should turn left. If you don't turn left, there is a wall. <laughs> and, and the machine doesn't care. It, it, it doesn't tell you turn left to protect your life. It just turn left because that's the way you should be going. You know? That's right. And somebody may say, but that's the way I've always gone. And you're like, well, but they've built a wall since you last went on this <laughs> yeah, road. So exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. So the change management aspect, the pace of pharma, obviously there is a lot at stake in our industry, much more so than other industries where it might be retail or travel. And so there's a lot of sensitive data. There's a lot of sensitive information. So understandably, the industry is more cautious. But how do you think pharma can accelerate its ability and life sciences in general can accelerate its ability to embrace a data and analytic orientation? Because I think there's widespread belief that this is now a matter of when and not if. Most other industries are further down the path and early adopters in our industry have seen value. What accelerates that? The will of a few. I think you need a few people who are going to take a very simple approach saying, I'm going to go underwater for some time. I'm going to connect the system, do all the plumbing. I'm going to get the data in the same place. I'm going to work with the IT guys to build a lake and to make sure that the data in that lake is clean and the water has transparent. And then from there, I will build some analytics and I will go to the rest of the business saying, this is the single source of truth. And that's where you need the leadership announcement, saying the numbers that are coming out of that system are representing the reality. And now from on, we're going to work based on that. And that's this way you will have the people with you because they will see that, yes, okay, in my old system, I had 19. Maybe in this one, I have only 18. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. 
What matters is what I can do with the new system and the insights it gives me, capability to manipulate all that amount of data, and capability to see the impact of my own personal actions. One thing in the past was very frustrating in pharma is that no one really knew what was the impact of the actions we were having because no one could calculate anything and, and we didn't care about the customer experience so we didn't ask the physicians what they were thinking about that. And when you do that and then for me the next stage there is let's start to talk with patient associations and let's educate them on the value and the power of the patient data and what they can and should be doing with it, how they should deal with the healthcare system and with the industry. I don't think we are so far from a world where the patients will have their data in hands and will be compensated for the usage that the industry or the healthcare system is having with their, their data. It's only fair. Yes, okay, GDPR says no one owns data really in Europe. You can correct it, but you don't own it. But still, if you look at the US, it's starting today. And I think that's really important because it's in that patient adherence to treatment, reaction on treatment, feelings, emotions, biometrics and stuff that is really the future of improving the healthcare for every single patient, not only treating one disease in one patient. Well, there's another term that you used in your article that I love, and it's in the section where you talk about the embrace of AI and how important that's going to be. And you refer to the Nessie project, this notion of AI swimming around the data lake, which I think is a great visual. But talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? And what is the value that's derived from that? This notion of AI that's just existing within the data lake and identifying different opportunities or different insights that are critical. So let's talk a little bit about volumes. I think in Grunenthal, we are interacting more or less on a yearly basis with 2 million customers or something like that, right? I don't have the exact number in mind. And in a world where we are in an omni-channel with those 2 million people, we will have 40, 50, 60 interactions per year, whether it is an email, a webinar, things like that. So you're talking hundreds of millions of data points where you show a specific content to a specific individual and you want to get the feedback from that specific individual. Did he like it or not? Is it working or not? Did he learn something or not? Is he going to the next content or not? And these type of things. To be able just to compute this volume of data and generate insight out of it, it's impossible to do it with standard dashboarding. It's not a question of creating KPIs. It's literally, you need something, you need Nessie that is going to dive into the lake of the data that is going to detect patterns, that is going to detect trends. Oh, that content, very specific on that medical point, is resonating with that group of customers who have those characteristics here and there. And therefore, maybe that's something I need to surface back to the humans. Maybe I need to bring it to the top and say, you know what, guys, those People look at that and they are really interested into it and they search for more information. So maybe you, creators of content, should address that need and give them what they want. That would be, for me, the Nessie project. The monster goes down, swims in the water, finds stuff and brings it back to the humans because we can't do that. The lake is just too big. We did set up our analytical capability and I think after six months, we were sitting on 9 billion of data rows. I can't compute 9 billion of data rows in my little Excel on my computer, sorry. I need 
some kind of AI, machine learning, what have you, to be educated and go and find the nuggets that are sitting in that lake. The greatest compliment I can give you is I'm jealous that I didn't come up with that. That's a great. <laughs> well, you can take it. There's no trademark. So I'm really happy if you <laughs> popularize the idea. I love it. So these principles, I think, are all really helpful. I'm curious to dive into almost your situation and what you've been doing for the last couple of years so we can see the actual impact, the challenges, the growth that you've been able to achieve. So maybe start by telling us you've been leading this commercial transformation for the better part of three years. Is that right? Yeah, I started beginning of 18 and we are now already 21. Yeah. So what motivated the transformation in the first place? What was the recognition about the way the company was operating that made you say, we need to transform and we need to do it now? I think there was first the recognition by the owners of the company that a bit of rejuvenation of the company was a good idea. You know, a middle size, very European player, even if we were in Latin America, there was a need for a broader, more ambitious strategy. Also the fact that we are nearly the last ones to do active research and development in pain. That's an area that the big companies have kind of left because it's not a super profitable area, even if it's something that has an absolutely huge need. As I was saying, we all suffer from pain. So there was something around that. There was something around strategic repositioning of the company, new people coming in and saying, guys, I need to understand how the business is running, what is working, and also discovering, arriving in this company, that there were some fantastic products that were under-exploited, under-used by physicians because no one had taken the time or the attention to believe in those products and to tell the physicians what they needed to know to use the products appropriately. And I think we started there, and that's what I was saying about the patient centricity, which was at the beginning really thinking, okay, you know what? Someone comes out of chemotherapy or someone comes out of the surgery, you know, how can we help them alleviate their pain? And yes, we have products, are they appropriate for them? Are they indicated for them? And then from there, how do they feel? So we started from there. And then we said, after that, yeah, the next step is logically to go to the customer and how can we better serve them? We had good relationships, like, you know, most pharma companies with some doctors. So we asked them, what can we do for you? What are we failing? What are we missing in the grand scheme of things? And that was the beginning of a new culture, a new approach and a new idea. The culture is super important. So this is where I want to try to give you truth serum virtually through our call here. But what is your self-assessment of where you are compared to where you thought you would be in the transformation at this point? I was hoping we could move faster, but I had underestimated the very challenging aspect for people to do things in a different way and not being sure that it's going to be successful. It's quite fascinating, actually, when you go to, to people and you tell them, you know what, we are having a new culture, so we are safe, you're safe, you can fail, no problem. If it fails, we'll do something else, it's going to work. No one's going to shoot at you. First, no one believes you. Everyone thinks, if I show him something that doesn't work, he's going to kick my ass and ask me to redo it, first thing. <laughs> Second thing, they have somewhere in the mind, and most people have somewhere in the mind, that notion that every dollar that we spend, every euro that we spend, needs to be an investment for the future. So when you go agile, you start to do prototypes. Prototypes are prototypes. You know, the SpaceX has probably broken hundreds of prototypes that were worth million dollars before getting it right. And they did it with zero remorse. But in pharma, 
the prototypes needs to evolve into a version zero that is going to evolve in a version one that will evolve in the final version put in the end of the customer. So that means that if your prototype is wrong, you never correct the thing. Those are the things that delay where we are. Now, what I find fantastic is that the people are really on board and they are eager to do it. We just need to simplify, create psychological safety for all, that they are on where they can make decisions. And that means that in a management, taking the hands off and saying, you know what, I am not a digital native. A 25-year-old kid knows more about digital than me. And so let's listen to what they have to say. And that's very hard in the pharma industry. Isn't it fascinating that we think in the equation between humans and new technologies and AI in particular, we tend to think that we're the simple element and it's the technology that's the complicated element. But in a lot of ways, it's the exact opposite. The complicating factor is the human behavior, the human mind, the human process that that I've heard numerous times what you just echoed right there, which is it didn't take us nearly as long to institute or install or change our technology stack. It actually took us much, much longer to build new processes and get people to embrace and get them to drop their insecurities about what it might do to their role. And that's the challenging but essential part to get right, it sounds like. No, absolutely. I think just an anecdote on that. When I was working in Japan, we worked with Actana. We said, let's try, because we had that vision of in 2020 that the reps would be equipped with a personal assistant and would help them manage their agenda and their interactions and remind them stuff. And we made a nice video and we worked very hard on the project and we implemented it and we set up that recommendation engine. And what we realized very rapidly, the field teams that were looking at the recommendation from the machine on you're going to that hospital, you should be going to see that doctor because you have not seen him in the last month and he asked information on that. So maybe you can bring the information. So these type of suggestions worked because the human could understand the suggestion of the machine. Every time we tried to put algorithms that were more sophisticated, like where the relationship between the cause and the decision and the thing to do was not super clear, at the beginning, the human rejected it. The system is wrong. It doesn't know what it does. What is that stupid idea? And I'm not going to do it. The first case, 80% of the suggestion ended up drag and dropped into the agenda and being executed. In the second case, nearly none of them. But what we discovered after that, once you have established that trust between the human and the machine, exactly like you and me, when we set up the GPS in our car, and that tells us, you know what, turn left or turn right because that's where you want to go. And I know the best road to go there better than you, right? We have established a trust. Then they were trusting the machine even if they didn't understand the reasoning that was behind. And they started just to drag and drop the recommendation in the system. So it can work. But the, the hard part to augment that intelligence that we have is to establish the trust. The human cannot not trust the machine. If we don't trust it, then the collaboration is broken. Well, one of the things we've found to establish that trust that's critical is transparency, that you need to be able to give the human user the reasoning behind why the recommendation is being made or to reveal what is going into the intelligence that you're passing on. Because if you don't, it becomes a battle of wills. I know better than you know. I have more history in my territory than you do. I know exactly. my customer better than you do. But if you share that, if you get what we call reason text, if you give them the reasoning behind the recommendation, then it starts to chip away at that pride or that conflict. And it allows them to partner, as you say, augment and augment what they do. And they say, oh, I see this as an asset and not a threat to my experience. 
No, absolutely. And even I would build on that. They enrich the data stack in that case willingly. Where, you know, in the past, if you adopt all the intention to prescribe that are declared by the doctors to the rep for the product following a visit, you end up selling more than the US are making money in a year, right? It's astronomical. But if they start to understand why we are using the data and how we are using it, then the people start to feed the system with the correct data. And then your algorithm become better serving them efficient recommendations. Farant, have you found parts of your transformation moving faster than you expected or facing fewer obstacles that you've been pleased by how much traction it's gained so far? Well, I think we moved really fast when we had the support of a group or an organization of customers that were interested to do something and wanted to collaborate in transparency. I think we have moved faster where we could fully collaborate with legal and compliance, for instance. Our approach to things has been to say from the beginning, yes, I'm collecting consents. Yes, I'm collecting data. And I want that to be totally transparent because I want a doctor to be able to call me and say, Florent, what are you doing with my data? And I need to be able to explain to that person exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I'm doing it because I want to give you, doctor, the best possible experience, the content that you want on the channel that you want when you want to consume it. I'm not trying to bully you into prescribing my product. And I think the places where we have established, as you were saying, this type of trust relationship and transparency are the places where we move faster. Because then compliance and legal supports us, medical is interested, the marketing teams really focus on the customer instead of trying to oversell their product, and the whole chain becomes more virtuous. One of the topics that we hear more than anything right now, I think, is that as in a lot of regions of the world, companies are looking to put their reps back into the field, that the opportunity to go back and visit doctors and visit other HCPs is becoming a reality, not everywhere, certainly, but in some markets, and it's becoming more common. But they're being very introspective about what has changed and what has changed with regard to the role of the rep in his or her interaction with all of the different touch points, digital and otherwise, and it's now becoming more of a hybrid role. It's a new toolkit that they need. How are you thinking about that at your company in terms of the way that the role of the rep has changed and their interaction with the other teams and channels? So the way we approach it is by educating people. I think in this new normal, yes, the role of the rep has changed, but fundamentally, the good reps from yesterday we're already doing that. If you think about it, it's just a question of making sure that what you say is relevant to the people you are saying it. And then, okay, yeah, there are some technical skills, how to set up a Zoom call, how to send an email, and this. That's just reconciling your professional self with your personal self. It's stopping being schizophrenic and in our private life, using uh, WhatsApp, Snapchat, Tinder, Uber, and all that. And then you go to the office and you use only the computer given by the company and only one channel of communication. That's where, for me, the mental tension was for most of those people. If you educate them properly to do the rest, they will do it. What we will see is an increase in content quality. What we will see is the reduction in contact frequency. Probably the visits are going to be longer because they will be more interesting, which can be unsettling for the rep because that means it's going to be a two-way conversation. But we have been preaching that for years. The best people in the sales team, in the field teams, were people who could actually 
ask questions to the physician and bring them answers on the questions the physician were asking, not the people who are just going around running with an iPad and showing a fancy chart. So I don't think it's fundamentally different. What could be different is really the self-service by the physicians. We need to find a way to bring back those doctors from going on some random sites where no one checks the quality and the accuracy of the information that is there to sites of trust. And I don't really care if that trust site is owned by WebMD or Doctors.net or M3 or Grunenthal or someone else, as long as the information that is on it is accurate and is what the customer needs. Yeah. I think it takes me back in the early days of Octana, we often talked about, and we still do today, that a lot of the value of what AI and machine learning like ours can do is that it takes the best habits of the best reps or the best practices and it models that for the rest of the organization. And it gives them the right toolkit, the right data approach, the right customer empathy to use when they go and speak to customers. It's back to that transforming your way. And this is probably central to what you're doing rather than thinking inward about your own products or your own processes that you're comfortable with if you think externally about what the customer's preferences are in terms of channel, frequency, content, then you're going to be much more successful. Everybody wants to feel like they're being respected and heard, and it's no different in our industry. Oh, absolutely. And if you think about it, it's just us catching up. Today, when you look at something like I don't know, Babylon else. The physician who is sitting behind the screen with video called by a patient, as a whole AI helping him or her to understand the patient file, to look at the patient on the screen, understand the emotions. The AI is helping there. The AI is helping everywhere in our daily life. And then suddenly we go to the office and we are back to Windows 3.1. Sorry, doesn't match, doesn't work. Not in 2021, not after COVID. <laughs> well, Ferrand, I could keep talking to you. This has been fascinating, but I am also very excited to get to our second section here, which, as listeners know, is called Ferrand in Context, where we ask some questions about you and your kind of personal inspirations or personal approach. So if you are uh, willing, we'll dive into that section here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I don't know exactly what it is, but yes, let's go. <laughs> Okay, let's do it. So the first question, who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us? A patient, a patient with schizophrenia gave me a purpose in life, in my career, because he was on stage and that was, you know, those type of standard convention. And this guy comes on stage and he talks about the voices in his head, how the voices in his head prevent him from having a normal life because he can't articulate what he thinks because there are so many people talking in his head. And when he's taking the product, the voice go off, disappear, and then he can think. And I was like, you know what? This is why I'm here. This is why I'm working in this company, to do that. Now, just to steer influencer in terms of business approach, I think is you know, a guy from AstraZeneca, someone called Bruno Angelici, who was kind of the very important person when I joined AstraZeneca, was highly feared by everyone, was very straight on the business and give me the numbers and no bullshit. But that was a fantastic experience uh, to learn from him how to drive a business, how to steer, how to challenge people, and also how to show empathy and reward talent and diversity. I think that was really one of my most impressive managers. How long ago was it when you heard the patient with schizophrenia? That was 16 years ago. Yeah. Wow. I can imagine that being very inspiring and influential. If money was not a factor, what career would you most like to pursue? 
Uh, this one is easy because that's what I will do once I'm retiring. I will be publishing books. I want to be a book editor because there is something fascinating in writers. There is something fascinating in the fact people put all their brain and energy and stuff in writing books, novels or whatever. And I would like to help them publish them. So you won't be the author. You'll be the publisher, the editor. No, I'm bad at writing. I'm too lazy, I fear. I mean, I try to write a novel and it never ends. So I can write articles because that's short. <laughs> I can be an author, but publishing and it's, you know, I had in the past an interesting experience. We did the literary death match where we brought some authors on stage and they were reading parts of their books and the public was voting for this one or for that one. And that was a fascinating experience. And those people are, I really love them. So I think I would do that. <laughs> I'll make a note to get in touch with you because I would like to do the writing part. Cool. You can make a deal. Yeah, I spent a few years pursuing screenwriting. It was fascinating to me. It actually changed my view of the work that I do now and the way that you build an architect story and the way that you're empathetic to an audience. Yeah. So it's fascinating. What profession would you most not want to pursue no matter what it paid? I don't want to be a TikTok influencer. <laughs> Being scrutinized, analyzed, having to do those dances and stuff, my energy for 50 second video with no meaning. It must be exhausting. <laughs> and it's not me. I, I would end up in a mental asylum. I don't want to be a TikTok influencer. However, you, how much you pay me? Have you been approached for this? No. no. I don't think people are blind enough to approach me for that, but no. Oh, that is my favorite answer so far. That's excellent. Well, what is the best book, film, or show that you've enjoyed recently? I know it's not on TikTok. And why? So recently, I think, and it dates back a couple of months, it was The Hype Machine by mm -hmm. Sinan Aral. So Sinan is a professor at the MIT. He's an evangelist of technology. He's an investor. And he specialized in analyzing social media and their impact, among other things. He's a great analytical mind. And he shows in that book how social media has disrupted the elections, has disrupted the economy, also how it can be used for good, but how we need to be really, as citizens, as human beings, really careful with the social media. And I think that's really a recommendation for everyone to read this book because it's really a modern, important book from 2021, The Hype Machine. I have not read it. It is on my list because I do want to read that. It is obviously very timely for all the reasons you mentioned, but I think that's a great idea. Okay, so you're at a family gathering and your mm -hmm. eight-year-old nephew or niece asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? <laughs> I, I tell him, I'm going to work every day to make sure that when you're going to fall in the courtyard, you feel less pain than if I'm not going to work. <laughs> because I think that's something people can relate to. Or, you know, when you will go to the dentist, because of my work, you will feel less pain. There are a few things you can't really escape. I mean, death is one of them. French tax is one of them. And pain is another one. And I'm trying to work on the last one. <laughs> Excellent. I know you'll also tell them don't search for Uncle Florent on TikTok because you will not no, find me. No, so you, you won't find me. No. <laughs> Last question. Your ultimate dinner party for four. Who is there and what is served? Well, it depends if it's just a dinner or a party. If it's a dinner, I would say it's... I have a feeling it's a party with you, Florent. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, yeah, there are the two aspects. So, you know, the family dinner in Asia in a street restaurant like uh, Nizakaya, Tepanyaki in Kyoto, uh, Old Town, stuff like that. 
That's a fantastic moment. I mean, just the atmosphere, the food is amazing. The people are great. It's, it's just something. Now, if we are talking about party, I think I would do exactly the same thing, but I would do it with friends and that it would be in Latin America, like Brazil. They have some amazing street restaurants in Sao Paulo. It starts at 10 p.m. and you never know when it's going to end. That's a really uh, nice experience I would recommend to everyone. Specifically the meat lovers, because they bring meat from Argentina and I'm not vegan and uh, I'm sorry, but I like meat and that's amazing. <laughs> and are there any particularly notable guests that you would have there? Anybody in the world that you would want to have in attendance with you to enjoy that kind of experience? I think there are, you know, a couple of writers or philosophers of French that I would have. I would love, for instance, to have a dinner with uh, Michel Welbeck right now to know where he is, where he stands. He has been very influential in France. But that's, it's, it's always interesting to see important people, but I don't think they are the ones who are shaping you and making the best parties. So, you know, I could go with, like on Clubhouse, trying to find Elon Musk and PDD or, or Kanye West. But I'm not sure I would enjoy the dinner, really. <laughs> they must be fascinating individuals, but I, I don't know. It's not for me. I mean, when I party, I party. So in this case, I'd rather be with Beyonce, you know, just that would be probably more fun. <laughs> oh, Florent, I have had so much fun talking with you. We have learned a ton and been entertained as well, which I imagine is what the party and the dinner with Florent would be like. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. We really enjoyed it. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me and I will hold you on the discussion about writing and publishing and probably we can have a, do that somewhere in Brazil around a nice dinner and a nice party. I would love that and it'll go and go and who knows when it ends. Exactly. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman. You can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all of the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks everybody for joining us.